Hey everyone, this is Katie, and I am thankfully alone today. I finally got rid of Jesse, who, by the way, has agreed to give me 80% of our Patreon earnings to help address the gender wage gap. And if he tells you otherwise, he's just trying to be modest. So the episode you're about to hear is a conversation between me and a woman who was required to go through a year's worth of equity, diversity, and inclusion trainings with none other than Robin D'Angelo, the best-selling author of White Fragility and the subject of our last episode. This is going to be a lot more interesting and make a lot more sense if you actually know something about Robin D'Angelo in her work. So if you haven't already, go back and listen to our last episode before you listen to this one. So the woman you're about to hear me interview wanted to remain anonymous to avoid any potential professional fallout, but she worked as a graphic designer at a nonprofit theater company that brought in D'Angelo and other diversity trainers after an incident that took place offstage. And that'll all make sense shortly. Um, We've also decided to keep the theater anonymous in order to protect her as much as possible, but I did verify that this incident did actually take place. So this was originally going to be a Patreon-only episode, but we decided to make it free for everyone because we think more people really need to hear about what's going on in these diversity trainings, which are rapidly spreading and might be coming to a conference room near you soon. Um, That said, we do have a lot of bonus content for paying subscribers, uh, including some photos of Jesse recording topless that he doesn't know I have. So if you want more from us, check us out at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. And as always, thank you for listening. We deeply, deeply appreciate the support and enjoy the show. What happened to lead to your uh, introduction to Robin D'Angelo? Robin D'Angelo was brought on board at the company as a racial sensitivity consultant after we had an incident regarding uh, the N-word. And it got really, really heated. Um, There was some publicity about it even um, in like the local press. And um, one of one of my organization's like immediate responses about the whole thing was that we were going to um, start in on this like EDI journey. And EDI. That stands for equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so can you give me a little bit more detail about the incident? So was this, did someone call someone else the N-word? Was it like that or, or was it more like a sort of microaggression? Well, that would have been really awful, right? If someone called someone the N-word, it was not that. It was... Um, a stagehand was on, was like mic'd into like the backstage uh, mic'd system. And the stagehand asked a question. This is purportedly what happened. Like I wasn't there. This is, this is the story is that the stagehand asked a question about what they had just heard in the script um, being spoken online. The play at the time that was being performed was um, like a mostly black cast. It was uh, a play about, like the African-American experience in this uh, neighborhood in New York City. And I guess there's like a pause in the script where the character sort of implies a word that's not said. And the stagehand basically asked into the mic, did she just say the N-word? But the stagehand said the N-word. <laughs> um and it got out that that was said because there was like an intercom system. And so the cast heard the N-word being said. And then all hell broke loose. Um, there was accusations that the company like didn't initially handle it correctly, uh, that there was some apology from the stagehand to the cast um, for saying the word out loud. But the apology like wasn't enough or or they had issues with sort of how that was handled. And then there was a big all staff meeting held about it so that it could like all be aired out in the open. And that was, 
That was, that staff meeting was like unlike anything I had seen. It was a fucking shit show, Katie. Yeah, tell me about it. Lots of crying. Oh, white tears? Definitely a lot of white tears. But but in our defense, we didn't have Robin yet telling us that white tears were violent. So <laughs> we just didn't know any better. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of crying. And, and like, I do get that people were upset. But I, I remember walking away from the meeting just feeling like it was a little unhinged. Um, like a bit hysterical and there wasn't really it like wasn't being moderated in a way that was sort of keeping the hysterics down it was just sort of this like open mic format where well I should say like first the artistic director stood up and and he explained like what had happened that there was this incident and someone said the n-word and I mean I'm thinking oh holy shit like someone's saying the n-word in our office is a big deal and then he proceeds to explain this wasn't directed at anyone. It wasn't being used as a slur. And I'm like, okay, that's that's good, right? Because that'd be awful if someone was running around calling someone that. And then immediately he followed up with, but I want to be clear, intention doesn't matter. And that was like his underlying point, which like, come on, in what universe does intention not matter? It would clearly be worse if this if someone were like, Right was using this as an insult. That's how that all staff meeting, and that's how just kind of the tone of the the whole organizational conversation around that incident felt to me. It felt as if it felt as if we were reacting to it as if someone was, um, you know, really being like explicitly racist and like venomous towards another person um, and using like a horrible term as opposed to asking a question about the script. Right, right. And this is something that that comes up sort of frequently. It comes up in white fragility, this idea that impact is more important than intent, which does seem to me to be a very like against sort of human nature. I mean, there is a there is a reason that manslaughter has a different penalty yeah. than uh, than murder, that we do sort of make make uh, concessions for accidents or mistakes, but not when it comes to this one, this like one particular issue. Right. And I mean, the, the example I've heard that I, I resonates with me is like if someone in the grocery store bumps into you by accident, you say, excuse me, or they say, excuse me. And it doesn't like ruin your whole week. If someone came barreling at you in the aisle and was like, I'm going to like push you with my elbow, like bitch. And then like pushed you, man, intent would matter. Like that would be that would be pretty unsettling. So intention does matter in normal human interactions. Intention absolutely matters, but within this sort of um, this sort of ideology, yeah. this dogma, and yeah. like all of a sudden it doesn't. Right, and and I can steel man it. Right, I mean it, it, to the extent that mm-hmm. look, accidents can hurt people too. Yeah, impact like impact matters. I don't think I don't think acknowledging that intention matters means that accidents can't also be hurtful. Right. Um, I don't, don't think it has to be like one or the other, but. So was the, was the guilty party at this meeting, the stagehand who had, who had said the N word? No, no, no. Um, they were put on administrative leave and I don't think they were at that meeting because they were on leave and then they were away from the company for a while, but then they were brought back as we were like doing these, uh, sessions with Robin and her co- co-facilitator. So, and, and I mean, technically I don't think I was ever supposed to know who it was, but yeah, but internally I mean, people figured it out. 
Right, right. So, so the company decides to bring in Robin D'Angelo to to lead these. Uh, what what did you say? Equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah, EDI. Uh, I guess the lingo was like we called it like the EDI work. We're gonna mm-hmm. do the work mm-hmm. and um, right. Got to do the work. Got to do the work. And Robin was initially she initially paired up with a. So I mean, Robin is a white woman. As you know, but maybe some of your listeners don't. And uh, she, at least to my understanding at the time, she like frequently pairs off with, um, I think typically a, a black co-presenter so that she can be the one that like speaks to directly to the white people in the room. She, uh, you know, she can look us in our white faces and be like, I'm white too. And this is what we do this is how we like run away from racism and this is how we perpetuate it. And then uh, her co-facilitator who's like a person of color can, can speak more to like the, the truths of racism and the truths of like the lived black experience. And so that's, that was the pairing. It was um, Robin and Victoria. And we were, I think basically slotted to have them do ongoing workshops and these big sessions, like all staff sessions, I think throughout the whole year, but this was like right before Robin's book was published. So she kind of hit the big time in the middle of it. And, uh, and we didn't see her anymore. (laughs) She was really, she left. And then, uh, someone else came in and like took her place. But at that point we were like more into like the gender and sex part of the EDI work. And then uh, the last session that I was ever part of was the gender expression, like trans, trans issues. Okay. So they're hitting the, the whole, the whole bevy of diversity. Yeah. Yeah. We got the whole bevy. It was more than a year. Robin was wow. around for the race stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been trying to rack my brain cause it was years ago now. Um, I think I can remember specifically two sort of long form sessions that she led. And then, uh, and then she did a small group session with like with the individual departments. And so I remember one or two of those that she did with my department. Well, tell me about those sessions. What would take place um, and these, and these trainings? (laughs) They were four hours long. Oh my God. Yep. And they were very, very mandatory. Ah. Uh, Like so mandatory that you had to have like written permission from your supervisor. If there was some reason you couldn't attend and then you'd have to like, prove that you did make up equity work somehow. Um, <laughs> if you, so if you didn't attend, you had to like go out and do something else to like, yeah, or I, I think, I think they were doing like makeup sessions um, for people who couldn't like smaller sessions with Robin and Victoria, if you couldn't make it to the big one. We also had to account for like EDI homework. We had to, there was a point at which we had to tell our supervisor what was like a, an action or a step you took, a book you read, something you did to like fur- further the goals of EDI um, like this month. And I remember I had said, and it's true, I was reading um, uh, The New Jim Crow. So I, that was my homework. That's what I said I was reading. And I, I did read it. It was a good book. <laughs> were you like, were you expected to do this for free? I assume they didn't pay you for your time to, to read this book or do your outside homework. Uh, like, correct. That, that would have been free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one should have to pay you to be anti-racist, Katie. How dare you? How oh, dare right, you? Right, right. Uh, my my <sighs> mistake. Uh, so, so, what were these? So, just t- take me take me through one of these trainings. What would actually happen? I would say it was largely like a lecture format, and Robin and Victoria would trade off. So, like 
Robin would speak for part of it. And then uh, Victoria would speak for another part. And that would probably make up at least half of it. And then the second half would be, would be like a slightly more interactive um, questions or exercises. Um, it's a, it was a big staff. We're talking like a hundred people. So, um, so like nothing too involved and, and <laughs> nothing as crazy as like the baptisms and shit that's like happening right now um, in other cities. Uh, sorry to say, I don't have anything quite that dramatic to report on, but I, I, that's, this is probably all stuff that like wouldn't be all that surprising questions about like, how do you think we, it's a question to like examine your own privilege um, or how were you socialized around race? And um, or we'd be like asked questions about like sort of what we had just heard. And, and the, the racial lectures really hit on probably everything you'd expect. It was like the real definition of racism is, is power plus prejudice. Right. Um, uh, we would talk about, I think there was, a whole four hour section on intersectionality. Like we had a whole day just on intersectionality. Yeah. White privilege, white fragility. We sort of hit it all. If you've ever watched like any of Robin's like filmed lectures, it it was a lot like that. Uh, She did demonstrate an apology for us, which was like a little, a little crazy. Um, And it was, I mean, it was a real life apology because she had, um, I remember this right we had taken a break for lunch and then like come back for like round two and round two um it was now Robin's turn to speak but she started off by apologizing to Victoria in front of all of us and I think if my memory is right I think the infraction the racism that she perpetuated against Victoria in the previous session that she wanted to apologize for was interrupting her like she'd cut her off or something. And so she, she used it as like an opportunity. Like this is how you like repair. And it's all the lingo you've heard. If, if you've read her book, I'm sure she talks about it, but like repairing, repairing the relationship with Victoria. And I, I'm sorry, I perpetuated this racism against you and like acknowledged the, the greater context of like white people historically having the, the voice in the room and, um, and yeah, and made a big point to be unemotional during the apology. That was a big deal. Is that white women can't <laughs> emote too much, or or it puts like too much burden on the POC? And right, right. That's that's another thing that I find sort of odd about this. Is it something like that? Like you interrupt somebody. You know, I mean, fuck. Jesse and I interrupt each other all that time. That that doesn't mean that I'm anti-Semitic. It doesn't mean that he's anti-gay or what, or that we hate white people or whatever. That's just <laughs> like when you have a conversation, you just interrupt people. Yep. And this idea yeah. that if you you know, if you if you make that all about race, I don't really see how it benefits actual people of color to go around the world thinking that every perceived slight or every sort of interruption or whatever is is a byproduct of racism. Then they're going to see racism everywhere, including where it doesn't exist. And I can't see how that's good for anybody's sort of ability to live in the world. Examining every interaction you have with someone of a different race I, I don't see how that gets us where we want to go. That's true. And I don't know that like organic friendships really ever work that way. 
Were there any sort of like, did you, were there incidents in the trainings where you did have somebody have to like apologize to a coworker besides Robin or like any white tier situations or anything like particularly notable that happened during these trainings that you want to mention? I never in any session I was in witnessed, uh, witnessed an apology between coworkers. Um, it's not to say it didn't happen between closed doors. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember times where people would, would say things that weren't, that weren't very woke and they would get like put back into place, you know, however they get corrected. Like we had this, we had this coworker who she was like a middle-aged lady from, I think from New York. And she like totally fit that stereotype, talkative and kind of loud. And I think she had missed like the first session where we were all told how to speak woke or whatever, because she did not speak woke. She wanted us all to know that she, that some of her best mm-hmm. friends were black. I mean, you can almost hear the gasps in the room. Like how dare she, how dare she use the, my friends are black trope. And then she, she said, she said, and race doesn't matter. Like to me, it's a, uh, it's not an issue in our friendships and more, you know, more in my mind, I hear the gasps because now, now she's saying she's colorblind and that's so racist. And, uh, and I'm sure she was like put back into her place in some, in some fashion, um, by the facilitators. But like in retrospect, how fucking ridiculous to judge her for that. Cause I, I mean, I can't say my closest friends are black. This lady's probably living an actually much more integrated like diverse life than I am. I've grown up in white cities and my communities are white. And here she was telling us that like race isn't this huge factor in some of her best female friendships. And instead of that being like a great thing, it was, I just, I remember the feeling in the room being like, oh, this lady has so much to learn. (laughs) And and then, oh, like one other thing too. That's fucking crazy. Um, I think I think the question must have been asked. There was some prompt where the people of color in the room, this is in a smaller group session, people of color in the room were asked if they had experienced racism at our organization. Like a pretty important question to ask if we're going to start a year of this work, I guess. And uh, I had an Asian coworker answer um, that they hadn't. They had not experienced racism. And instead of that being met by the facilitator is like, I don't know, good news. She was immediately shut down. Um, the question from the, from the, the black facilitator was, well, do you think, uh, you know, Asian people in this country have a different experience of racism than black people? And my coworker like gets kind of quiet. She's like, yes. And then the facilitator, uh, Victoria, the facilitator goes, that's right. They do. And then we moved on. Like, why are you fucking asking the question if if this POC coworker's, you know, answer didn't matter? Like there was no again, there's just like no curiosity. It just felt like they had the answers already. We were a racist organization cuz look around, it's mostly white, so we got to be racist. And 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 even a coworker saying explicitly that like that was not her experience didn't matter. And and she didn't speak the rest of the session. Well, Asians are white adjacent, according to uh, to the new rules. Probably the weirdest thing that happened was just that there would be times where they would like ask all the POC employees to leave the room, and then they would go off and like have a 
like a POC, like breakout group. And it's probably obvious. This is like a very white organization, um, which was made very clear that that was a huge problem. And, um, and so, yeah, the, the majority of us would be like left in the room with Robin. And then we'd be really talking about like our, our complicity in all of this and, and our role. So what was that like? I mean, you, so in, in her book in white fragility, one of the interesting things about it is that she doesn't really talk about success stories. She talks mostly about how she does these corporate trainings, uh, which are usually mandatory, maybe always mandatory uh, for people to attend. And then she talks a lot about sort of, you know, the resistance, what she would call white fragility, the, um, you know, uh, women, especially crying, men pounding on tables, people completely unwilling <laughs> to acknowledge their own, their own complicity and, and, you know, in this, this like racist white supremacist culture. And, and it, people like, it doesn't seem to make any difference. Like she talks, what she mostly talks about is how it, how it fails, right? How people, how there's so much resistance, which is of course just more evidence that right. she's doing the right thing. Oddly. No, um, it's totally unfalsifiable. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it wasn't in until retrospect that I saw that, but I mean, yeah, in retrospect, completely unfalsifiable. She would ask us to like check in with like our physiological reactions to things she was saying. And if anything, basically like ever made us feel uncomfortable. It just proved her theory um, that we were, that we were fragile and that this was like hard, a hard truth to accept. Um, and I mean, I can steel man that too. If I was leading, there's a grain of truth there. If I was leading like a group discussion on, on any topic that's difficult, I see the value in like reminding the group, Hey, like try to be open-minded or, or like listen or like avoid knee jerk reactions or whatever. But, but when you say that this like group of people uniquely is resistant to, um, you know, anti-racism work and that any reaction to the anti-racism work that isn't, that falls short of just like agreement or, or some kind of like submission or what she would call listening, then, then that's just proof. So it's just this feedback system that, uh, is proving her right. Like, I don't know that there are success stories because the success is in her mind is a, is a racist person. All of the white people like acknowledging that we are, um, you know, even against our will, like racist and complicit. Uh, yeah. We're born racist. And we're like- born racist. And, and we can't help it. We were like socialized into this system, she would say. And, uh, and so, so you end up with like, like the wokest of us in the group. And I definitely count myself among those people because I was not critical about this uh, as I was going through it. Like Robin was, Robin was like one of my heroes at this point. Really? Like, well, yeah. And I, I mean, I hate to say that, but I was just really didn't want to be racist. And, and I, her book wasn't out, but I like, I'd read one of her articles and I'd watched a video and, and she is like she's a compelling speaker and, and it, it, a lot of it's nuts what she says, but she says it really well. <laughs> and so I was on board and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be fragile and I wanted to like do the work that, that I needed to do. And so me and like the other like woke or whatever millennials in the group, I remember the, probably the most like version of it being a success story is just that we started to kind of run up tallies in these sessions where we would try to come up with, you know, ways in which, yeah, like I'm, I'm racist and I, I, 
and, and trying to come up with examples that that was the way to prove that you weren't like opposed to racial equity work was to like <laughs> counterintuitively. It, it's yeah, it's a like weird contradiction. It is no, it is. It's like it's like in Salem, like only true witches will deny being witches. Right. You're gonna get burned at the stake either way, so you might as well admit you're a witch. I guess. Well, so um, what would be an example of something like like in what way would you admit? So it sort of sounds like an AA meeting, you know, like everybody stand up and say like, "Hello, my name is Katie, and I'm a racist." Like, what would be an example of something that you would that you would say to like acknowledge your own your own racism or your own complicity? I can't remember if I use this as an example, but I remember definitely thinking about it at the time and feeling guilty that I had like. For example, in a hallway, um, a black coworker, black male coworker passed me by and he was wearing a suit and he looked really sharp. And I, I remember saying, looking sharp, like I gave him a compliment and, and going through this work, uh, with Robin, I remember like replaying that, like, you know, interracial interaction I had over and over in my head. And what I came up with that was racist about it was that maybe I like hold black people's fashion to like a lower um, standard. And like, it, like I started asking myself, would I, if he was white, would I have said looking sharp or did I give him that compliment because he's black? And so like, that's like an example I could have. And how is the sort of the, the atmosphere in these rooms? Were there people there who obviously didn't want to be there uh, or was it a sort of wholehearted like buy-in? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think in, there's a lot of vocal buy-in, but I think in retrospect, there were probably people who were critical of it at the time who um, were just very quiet. Right, right. And so you did this for a year. Yeah, yeah. And so, and the organization, is it is it a nonprofit? Yep, yep. Performing arts nonprofit. And I, this is, uh, you, you probably don't know the answer to this, but do you have any idea how much they, they paid for the service? I don't, but I think... And I can't say how I remember knowing this, but I, I heard something that it was just a lot. I never heard like a specific number, but just a fuck ton. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh. And I meant to say that part of the work too was, um, they formed, uh, white affinity groups that we were encouraged. Oh my God. That's not, that like, that sounds so racist. I know it fucking is racist. <laughs> we formed um, white power groups. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, white affinity groups and that we were encouraged to attend um, and POC affinity groups. And what would happen at these groups? Okay, so uh, this is where I drew my personal line. I was starting to get uncomfortable with some of the stuff that was happening. So I never attended a white affinity group. But the way it was explained to me is that it was like a space for white people to like work out, work out their racism without putting that burden um, on on people of color, so that you know, it's like the emotional labor argument that that there could be like harm done to a POC just having to listen to white people kind of work through their own racism. So so those groups were um, separate for a long time. I think they might have might have come together right as I was leaving, but I it, it seemed to me like a pretty easy line to draw in the sand and go. I'm not ever going to go to a group. <laughs> just based on the color of my skin. Like that doesn't feel good to me. So what happened to you? So you started this out being a true believer and a fan of Robin D'Angelo. Yep. So, yep. so what happened? Um, yeah, I, she led, um, 
she led a small group with like just my department. And it was, <laughs> the story requires a little bit of context. Um, but it was like my, I don't I want the word term red pill. What's the color pill, Katie, when you purple? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Okay. Purple. It was my purple pill moment where you like still believe in systemic racism and you still think black lives matter, but you like want to take a step away from Robin D'Angelo, whatever color pill that is. <laughs> I took that pill, uh, on that day. Um, do you mind like a little bit of context? Oh, no, please, for- please. Okay. So, um, I had designed a poster for the Odyssey. The poster featured, it had this like decorative element. It's this like Grecian geometric, like interlocking pattern in the design of the poster. And I had based, I had drawn that pattern based off of like a source image I had found of, of an actual pot, a piece of pottery from ancient Greece. And uh, so the poster had a little bit of like authenticity or whatever to it. And everybody loved the poster. Uh, my supervisors signed off on it. We printed, I don't know, like 30,000 of them. And then sometime later, I'm like brought into my boss's office and like, he's a great guy. I love my boss, but we have this like really serious conversation where he goes, it has been brought to my attention that there are swastikas in this poster. And, and like, I look at it and yeah, okay. I guess, I mean, if you like isolate sort of on that pattern where the angles intersect, like, yeah, swastika, but again, they're not isolated. It's like this completely contiguous pattern. Um, and one that I had, sourced from a pot in ancient Greece. So, um, (laughs) but yeah, and that predates like 1930s Germany, as far as I can tell. But so, I mean, I ask, I go, oh my goodness, is like a customer really mad? They like saw it. And he goes, no, it was an anonymous coworker, Katie, who like blew, who saw, who saw a swastika in the design and blew the whistle on me. And and he, I, I'm pretty sure I know who it is, but he went straight to Robin and Victoria, our racial sensitivity consultants, and told them about it. Oh, my God. And yeah. And at this point, like, I did not have a direct conversation with them about the design. It was being handled by, like, my department head. And, and, and ultimately, what was decided was that we were not going to change the design. Um, it like went up the chain, it went up the chain, like a few pay grades and the executive director is like culturally Jewish or ethnically Jewish. And so he, he got the final say and he was like, I'm a Jew. This is fine. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, we didn't change the design and, uh, and, you know, it never really became an issue. Uh, no one else really ever, ever saw the hidden swastikas. And, and the reason we didn't change it is because I, I could back up the design choice with, with like my source image, if anyone was ever really offended, I could, I could provide that. And we figured that was, that would be just fine. But fast forward to, um, Robin D'Angelo conducting my department's sort of small group session, which now we're talking like 12 people, right. Instead of a hundred. And she began the session by instructing the white people in the room not to defend ourselves if something was said in the session that made us feel um, defensive. 
that uh, that we were supposed to use this as an opportunity to practice listening and and that any reactions, sort of defensive reactions we might have to something that said, that would be a sign of white fragility. So we were just basically told not to speak for like a little bit, which I didn't think too much about because again, like I want to do this right and like I want to impress Robin or whatever. But like literally the next thing that happened is it was handed over to Victoria and Victoria says, I've been wanting to talk to this group about uh, the poster with the Nazi imagery, which like, pause for a second. Not every one of my coworkers had even heard about this controversy. So she just says it like, it's this like thing that we all know about. I've got coworkers whose heads flip over to me and they're giving me like, what the fuck faces? Cause they didn't ever hear about a Nazi poster, you know? And they know that, and so you're the designer, so of they know who is I'm responsible. I'm the designer. For this. There isn't. Right. It's me. But then right. Victoria, she proceeds to go. I'm not going to ask who designed it. It doesn't matter <laughs> who designed it. Like, like it's a great mystery. Oh my God. But she says it's a great example of how subconscious racism works. This person, she said, this person who made this, they didn't mean to put Nazi images into the poster, but this is how it works. These images, they just bubble up from our subconscious. And then she like went on to say that like Odysseus's ship, which is like in the poster, like that represented colonialism. And, and there's like trumpets and she had like this other crazy point she made about the trumpets. And I mean, I'm, Like I can hear my heart like pumping in my ears at this point because I feel so trapped and, and like, it's a silly example, all things told. Like I didn't, I didn't lose my job. It didn't get like leaked out on the internet. Like it was, you know, but it's embarrassing. It was so embarrassing. And, and I, I just remember feeling how unfair it was that I had just been told to not defend myself. And now I'm being told that, I've got like swastikas on the brain that is like coming up from my subconscious, which, which like, I mean, if you want an example of white fragility as a silencing tactic, that's it. Like black and white and it's, and it's unfalsifiable. She got to say, Hey, we're about to like make some accusations here. And, and if you have any issue, I mean, she didn't say this explicitly, but you know, what, what ended up happening is that, if if we had any issues with what was being said, and I definitely did, to speak, to even object to what was being said would prove that I was, you know, my fear was that it would prove that I was opposed to racial equity work. And, and I'm not, like, I'm not opposed to that, but I'm also not a secret Nazi. And, and, and it's so stupid because the statement that, there was something subconscious going on in the poster design. It's just patently untrue. And and anyone who designs knows that like the design process isn't exactly like an exercise in free association. You don't just like stare at a blank canvas and like let your deep dark biases like find their way onto your page. So and and Katie, I mean sorry, one more thing. You tell them I'm upset. I'm still upset four years later. Um how entrenched in like a anti-Semitic worldview would you even have to be to have swastikas bubble up like from your inner consciousness, like in like you're just generating them as you like move about the world? 
I, I don't even know how entrenched you'd have to be. It could have been so easily, we could have just gotten back on track so easily if I had felt comfortable to interject, if it hadn't been given this instruction um, to not defend myself. And so, so anyways, that was the purple pill moment for me. And it, and it really was because after that, I, I thought a lot more critically about everything that was being said. And, and it really just came down to, well, wait a second. This is something I know a lot about. Like I know my own mind. I know the process that actually went into making this design. And I know that these women have it wrong. So if they're wrong about this and they set up this situation where I can't even say it out loud, like what else are they wrong about? And, and it's not to say they were wrong about everything. It's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I just, I engaged my brain in a much different way after, um, after that. You know, there's something like the tactic like clearly doesn't work. I mean, for some certain subset of people, they will always be true believers or whatever, but what they're also doing, like you're an example of this by, you know, by making these sort of arbitrary rules, you can't defend yourself. What they're doing is driving you away from their message in the first place. So it's also like incredibly self-defeating on their part. So, okay. So you have this sort of purple pill moment. You start, uh, evaluating these sessions more skeptically. And so how does that also change things for you, like within sort of the organization, within your life? Um, was it destabilizing? Did it change your politics? What was the sort of evolution there like? I mean, I, I, I just became more and more critical of, of the EDI work. And I, I started to just notice where people were being silenced. I started noticing where situations, I started noticing how just the whole process, like, lacked curiosity that we weren't really being invited to give feedback or engage. And, um, and it felt very much like there were, there were right answers to questions and wrong answers to questions. Um, I mean, like, like I I had to come up with ways personally that were kind of small in the organization to just draw my own little line. And there were that I didn't think would get me fired or anything like that, but things like I didn't attend white affinity groups uh, I did not put, uh, pronouns in my email signature. Um, and that was starting to become something of a litmus test to, uh, for like what, like how, how into this work you were. There's the stereotypes of probably what I did too, like listening to Sam Harris and, um, and reading Katie Herzog. Um, uh, but I mean, I'm still, I, I would say I'm still liberal. Um, I'm just, I really question things that feel quasi-religious and I, I grew up evangelical Christian. So it, it's not that hard for me to act, to see the similarities. Uh, and like looking back, I mean, this whole like confessional thing where you admit that you're racist and, and you, you sort of count the ways in which you are and you're atoning. That's it, it, it's, it's straight up religious. And because I remember doing it, <laughs> I remember doing it as a Christian, like back when I was a Christian and I would say, you know, like in church, like the best Christians are the ones who are in the most admitting that they're super sinful. And so did you feel like you had people within the organization you could express these views with, or did you feel like you just had to keep your mouth shut? There would be, there would be sort of like hushed conversations here or there. Um, I remember one, like at a restaurant with a certain certain group of coworkers after a bottle of wine stuff started to come up that I wasn't the only one who 
had felt like a specifically like our department's um, one-on-one session was fucking ridiculous. And, and once I sort of said it out loud, you know, other people at the table did. So like, I know I wasn't alone, but like back in the building and like while the work was happening, there's no dissent. You just couldn't afford to, it was, uh, it was too charged. Mm -hmm. And what did you end up doing? So you, are you still employed by the organization? No, no. I, uh, um, I moved, and and when I moved geographically, uh, that was when I left. And I left on good on good notes, you know. Overall, like I wouldn't say that this, I wouldn't say like these trainings and stuff, and even that like overriding culture completely marred my experience at the company. I think it was a, it was a great company, really good friends with with my coworkers still. Um, was this part of the reason that you left? I mean, I I do think overall I was starting to just feel in my life like a little suffocated and a little bit like I couldn't say out loud things I wanted to say. Uh, Yeah. It's probably a little too simple to say like, that's why I left that organization. It was time to leave. Um, It was, it was just like the next step in my career is that I went uh, full-time freelance, but I was like personally very over a lot of, um, you know, the cancel culture and the, the finger pointing and the, uh, the, the thought crimes. It, yeah. Starting to feel a lot. So this is four years ago, right? Mm-hmm. It is four years ago is when it started. Okay. And so how, how has it been for you to see this sort of enter the national conversation in recent, you know, and you were sort of at the, you were ahead of the curve um, to see what was happening. Yeah. I would say that like arts organizations were probably were behind academia, but ahead of other organizations doing the work. And, and that makes sense to me because there's, it's just, it's just the nature of the people who work, who work in performing arts organizations. Um, you know, they, they, like, they want good in the world. Like they want to stop racism and, and everybody sees their own particular art that they're affiliated with is like being the tool that's gonna, you know, that's super powerful that has that agency to change. Mm-hmm. Um, are you worried about, about the state of our country? Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm worried in the sense that like, what is, what a stupid fucking way to have a really important conversation. That's, Mm -hmm. that's how I feel about it. And it, it's not that, it's not that I'm worried that a bunch of people are out there exaggerating problems. I just feel like it's, it's a really stupid way to have a conversation that we should be having. And Mm -hmm. And like, it strikes me that like the Robin DeAngelo approach, like focuses on the wrong thing. It just gets really like navel gazing and focuses on, on individual interactions, uh, like interracial interactions, as opposed to like huge actual systemic problems in our country and, and class doesn't get brought up enough into it and, I don't know. I think about like however many hours we spent in that room with Robin, if we had all just like written postcards to senators or something or did something else at that time, instead of talk about like me, the secret Nazi, um, how much more productive would that have been? Besides the fact that it's not productive, I'm also concerned about backlash, you know, I mean. Right, right, right. If the, if the cost of having the conversation, I mean, the average American I don't think is racist. Um, and I think, I think 
the average American wants to have wants to have the the right conversation about race in America. But if but if we're being told that there's only one very specific way to have that conversation and and you don't happen to agree with it, then then it feels like you then can't have the conversation. Like you're you're not included. There's no room for like dissent or or like a different like we can all agree like here's the problem. But it seems like and I, and I saw it at my company. It seemed like there was no room to disagree about how, you know, how we solve it, to, just to say it really simply. Did, do you think it had any impact on the way that you actually in your life interact with Black people or other people of color? I would say I've now gone back to normal. Um, but when I was in it, yeah, it made me much more cautious. And because cause you were... I mean, and I, I did believe it. I believed that, you know, the, that there was sort of an intrinsic like racism to me in my interactions. And so I was worried, uh, as I interacted with, you know, my POC coworkers, you know, you, I was worried, oh, am I going to say something wrong? Or can I compliment my coworkers hair? Like hair is such a fucking loaded thing. Um, and, and, and faced with the choice of, do I stick my neck out and like go for this interaction and then potentially, you know, have to pull like a Robin D'Angelo, like apology with a script she gave us, or do I, you know, just put my head back down and sit back down on my computer. It is often easier to, to do the latter. Yeah. The irony is if she's making actual relationships between white people and black people or people of color worse, it's just like, how is this this actually helpful for anybody except for Robin D'Angelo? Yeah. How did, how did we ever have like interracial friendships before Robin D'Angelo? How did we ever get along before? Robin D'Angelo doing her best to make uh, white people and black people get along worse. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, of course. My pleasure, Katie.